0: On this week's episode, we answer members' questions about the Supreme Court, the ATF, and the new federal gun law. I
1: made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun.
0: all right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and pick up a membership today if you want to get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and exclusive stories that you won't find anywhere else in the world. Uh, you'll also have the opportunity to submit questions for our special Q&A episodes like this one. I'm joined by contributing writer, Jake Fogelman today. And we're going to try to answer some of the questions that our members sent in. Um, and if you want to send in questions the next time we do one of these, uh, make sure you head out, head over to the site and check out our membership options. But uh, we got a lot of good questions, right, Jake? We were just going over some of them.
1: Uh, I would say it's impressive how many good questions we got in a short span of time. So good good membership, good engaged membership.
0: Yeah, you know, I've always been impressed by the questions our, our members ask. They're clearly very... Knowledgeable about what's going on yeah. in the gun world. And so uh, they make our jobs easier because they ask questions that are uh, relevant and can actually, we can hopefully actually provide some answers to. Uh, but so that's what we're going to be doing today. Obviously, there's been a ton <laughs> of gun news yeah. over this last couple of weeks here. Um, you know, you had the Supreme Court hand down its first major gun decision in over a decade in uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, and that's going to have monumental effects on gun laws throughout the country, Uh, not just gun carry laws, which were at issue in the case, but also really all kinds of gun laws, um, especially your more modern regulations, things like assault weapons bans or magazine uh, limits or handgun rosters, different kinds of Licensing schemes—you know—they could all be affected by this. Uh, so, we got a lot of questions on that, and then also, of course, you had the the, the federal government pass its first gun restrictions in in literally decades—restrictions uh, on who could own guns. So, uh, we got some questions on that as well, and and the ATF has, of course, been uh, been up to uh, a lot over the last weeks and months. So, uh, we got all kinds of interesting questions, but let's start here at the top with a question from uh, Bill Christofoli. Sorry, if I, if I pronounce anyone's names wrong, I apologize. Uh, and I feel your pain as uh, Steven Gutowski. It's like, that's not an easy one either, but uh, here's, here's the question. In a recent email from the Second Amendment Foundation, I read the following passage, but I'm not sure I understand what it means. Uh, this is a quote from Alan Gottlieb, who's the founder of the Second Amendment Foundation. They're very active in the you know, gun rights litigation throughout the country. And he said, it is also important that the High Court granted all writs of certiori in these Second Amendment cases as they were being remanded back for further review. That tells me we have a Supreme Court willing to rein in lower court activism and limit how far they will allow local and state governments to reach when it comes to placing burdens on the exercise of a fundamental constitutionally enumerated right to keep him bare arms. So what's Alan talking about here? He's
1: he's talking about these uh, recent GBRs as you called them in a piece, right? Right, Jake? That's right. Yeah. So while Bruin was being uh, well, it was argued, and then we were waiting for a decision. There were also other gun cases pending Supreme Court review that um, were stayed because obviously, with a decision as monumental as what happened in Bruin, it can affect future gun cases. Um, so what the Supreme Court did a week after Bruin was decided, is they did what, what's called a grant vacate and remand order or GBR as you mentioned so basically what that means is the supreme court grants cert or certiorari uh just so that they can vacate the previous ruling from the lower court and then remand which means they send it back to that lower court to review it under the new standard based on what happened in the pat in the bruin case essentially so what the supreme court did is is it kicked these four cases back to the courts where they came from and said, Hey, you need to re these because we have a new standard for reviewing second amendment cases.
0: And, uh, I guess one of the important things to note about that is all four of those cases, the gun regulation had been upheld by that lower court,
1: right? That's right. No, that's right. Yeah. There was a, a case out of the ninth circuit where they completely banned the concept of carry outside the home, which obviously Just is young, young Hawaii. versus why. Yeah. It's severely called into question by the Bruin decision. Um, I I think we all know where that's going to go. There was the assault weapons ban case out of Maryland, uh, Mm -hmm. Bianchi V. Frosh, I believe that one is, um, Mm -hmm. and you know, as you pointed out, assault weapons bans are a relatively modern invention. And when the Supreme court creates a new standard that says you need to look to the history of the second amendment, when it was ratified, um, that also calls that into question, depending on how things go at the court. And then there were two mag ban cases, one out of California and one out of New Jersey. So. A similar story there with the assault weapons case and magazine confiscation cases really because you yeah those cases
0: you wouldn't be allowed to keep the ones you already own um but yeah so that that's uh extremely significant because it it shows you the potential reach of this new ruling it's not just limited to gun carry um even though that's the immediate impact of it right you know that was the immediate question at hand in Bruin was whether or not New York's gun carry regulations were. Uh, too restrictive. And um, uh, my air conditioner is turning on right now, of course. Uh, (laughs) But uh, I don't know if people can hear that. They're always paranoid, of course, when you're doing a podcast about what what sounds are being picked up by the mic. But anyway, hopefully you can't. But uh, regardless, the New York law was viewed as uh, unconstitutional by the court, violated the Second Amendment uh, by way of the 14th Amendment, um, uh, because that's how they incorporated the Second Amendment protections to the states. Uh, you know, the federal constitution is, restricts the federal government, but uh, since the 14th Amendment was passed, those protections have now been, uh, over time, extended to the states. But uh, the problem was with the, the New York states, um, uh, the way that they subjectively judged whether or not somebody was qualified to have a permit was the, ultimately what uh, doomed that law, but, uh, clearly here by GBR and these four other cases that aren't all gun carry cases, it shows that this new standard they set in this ruling that you uh, discussed briefly there uh, is going to have an impact well beyond gun carry. So that's what Alan Gottlieb's talking about. Um, he's, you know, that, that's a way of also basically telling the lower court that you got it wrong. Right, uh, GBR, you know, granting a case, then vacating the lower court's ruling, and then sending it back to them to say, "Hey, uh, we do this again," yeah. is a way of telling them they're wrong, right? Um, without without going into the full uh, full on, you know, hearings and and oral arguments and writing, you know, opinions on them. So uh, that's what Gottlieb is, is talking about there. All right, next question here. Uh, This one's from uh, Joseph Francella, who asks, what does this mean for people in possession of magazines that hold more than 10 rounds currently? I know that in California, the ban on new sales and imports is in place, but there was a stay placed on confiscation until SCOTUS took action. So he's talking about, uh, that's Duncan, right, I believe, uh, out of California, that that case. So, yeah, what do you... What do you see happening now?
1: Yeah, so like you said, he's talking about Duncan v. Bonta. We covered it a couple times on The Reload in some news stories, but that was one of the cases that was just GBR'd back to the Ninth Circuit. Um, And as he pointed out, they did. uh, California updated its magazine law to completely ban the possession of magazines that were previously grandfathered under their ban. So what that essentially means is you now have something that's criminal contraband and you have to turn it in, so confiscation. But what they said was, hey, the Supreme Court's reviewing a gun case. This could change the way we look at Second Amendment jurisprudence. So until that goes through, we're not going to make you turn in your magazines. Well, now that it's been granted and, and obviously there's live action happening in the case, I, I see this stay you know, still being, still holding true Yeah, because they're just obviously dealing with the ramifications of the new standard in Bruin. Um, so this is a live question now.
0: Right. And, and it'll be interesting to see how... The, the lower court feels this one out, you know, what yeah. they do uh, in response to Bruin is is one of the big questions. And I think we have some questions on that later on, so we'll get a little more into it then. But, but I think it's one thing's important to note is nothing changes immediately. Right. Um, this will probably take months for these cases to be relitigated. Uh, if not years. This new yeah. standard. Yeah, maybe years. Uh, you know, for these, for these ones that have been GVR'd, I would expect those to move a little faster. Uh, some of these other, you know, laws that might be called into question, like, you know, handgun, handgun uh, purchase permit. Sure. Uh, schemes in some states that are, uh, that ride the line between shall issue and may issue, right, that, that ride that line between, you know, giving the government official ultimate say over who gets to buy a gun. Uh, those are probably imperiled by this, but we'll have to see. That'll probably take longer for uh, <clears throat> sorry for the a ruling to make its way through, yeah, or for a new case to make its way through, even even with this new standard. So, but these GBR cases, those will probably be you know maybe not weeks, but months, I would think. Yeah. Um. So that that's what you're going to see with that that bag band case in California. It's going to go back. They're going to the you know the stay is going to remain. They're not going to start confiscating right uh, magazines. I don't I don't believe, uh, but but yeah, it'll it'll be a while before that gets fully fleshed out. Uh, all right, Do you want to read the next one? Sure, then? yeah. Or, this one
1: this one comes. It's from a little bit of a long one, but you can
0: just get to the gist of it, I guess.
1: Sure, It comes from uh, Ken Bolu Bolu. Sorry, once again, what? apologies stand for the for the name butchering. We have people with a lot of interesting names. Who are we do, there, so, uh,
0: but uh, so, yeah, he, no, he's he's asking about um, Ken is asking about uh, carry on military bases, right? I don't. We, right. we don't need to get into some of the details. Uh, I don't know if he wants them identified, but he's sure. just he's asking basically about. Uh, concealed carry on military bases you know the, this is something that's been controversial over the years right. especially since you've seen a number of uh, terror attacks on yeah, yeah on, on military bases but they they generally have um uh, bans on concealed carry right uh, unless you're, you know on, on some sort of duty that requires uh, you to have a weapon and so um, yeah, so what's the gist that he's getting
1: at here? Yeah, he basically wants to know how that current prohibition of carry on military installations can interact with the sensitive places doctrine that the court mm. kind of touched on but didn't really fully flesh out in the Bruin decision. So he just wants to know if there's a path forward for someone like him with a permit to carry to potentially carry on his military installation, um, which yeah. is an interesting question, I think.
0: It is, and he he throws in here, you know, so he finally he touches on what's going to be a very big. Point of contention going forward now, now that you know May issue is no longer constitutional, what you're probably going to see the most fights over are these sensitive places uh, exceptions where you can have gun free zones affected because the court has said repeatedly, said it in Heller it said it again in Bruin uh, and and uh, uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh emphasized it in the concurrence that you know. The Second Amendment is not an unlimited right, I believe is the exact term that that Heller used. And there are restrictions that can be placed on it. Um, And one of those that they've specifically mentioned is sensitive places. So, you know, uh, what does that mean? What is a sensitive place? I mean, right now what you're seeing in New York with their attempt to respond to Bruin is basically they're trying to make, a lot of place, they're trying to really expand, really push the limits of what a sensitive place exception can be. In fact, they're even doing, uh, they're sort of flipping private property uh, exceptions on their head from how everyone else has done them forever, uh, which is to say that uh, private property is de facto off limits, unless the property owner explicitly posts a sign to say that it's legal, that they they allow gun carry there. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of tests of this. And military yeah. bases will be an interesting one. Um, Ken says, to me, sensitive places include courthouses, secure airport terminals, inpatient mental health hospitals, and perhaps most places where magnetometers are in use. But but I don't think all government buildings qualified as a sensitive space. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, I think that's probably a common view. Yeah. Uh, like, the more a reasonable view of what a sensitive place is, you know, something that has security for
1: it, usually, you know, a courthouse, a school. I, I was going to say, that's what kind of calls into question, perhaps how the courts mm-hmm. will view military installations, because there are MPs stationed on military installations yeah. that are obviously armed. I could definitely see a court saying, Hey, sorry, you don't need to carry there's armed people there for the purpose of security, uh, so yeah
0: honestly it'll probably come down to the judge uh probably frankly we're going to get into this in just a moment i think the next question deals with this i think frankly that's the answer to a lot of these questions um it's kind of going to come down to the judge and it's going to come down to how strongly the supreme court feels about what the lower courts are doing you know you see in bruin that they're very angry about how the courts have been handling Second Amendment cases over the last decade or last twelve years since McDonald, Um, but they didn't. You know, they didn't. One of the big criticisms from the gun rights people is that they hadn't done anything about it, and um, uh, and so uh, you know, if the court, lower courts, kind of um, try to work around what the Supreme Court has just put down, help you know, in in this case, they're going to have to actually the Supreme Court is going to have to actually take up more cases to yeah. make sure that they're keeping them in line basically. Um, so, cause yeah, I think it could go either way. You know, military bases, are they sensitive places? You know, uh, you could certainly make an argument for the, they are and you can make an argument for they're not. I mean, military bases are kind of like, in a lot of cases are kind of like whole towns. Right. Right. Um, and so can you make basically an entire town, a sensitive place while well, it is inside a military base that's fairly sensitive right but i you know i don't know it's, it's interesting. an interesting
1: legal question for sure yeah yeah i, I just so, don't see uh, i just don't know if i see courts telling military installations what they can and can't do that's another i think wrinkle in this that yeah judges may problem. be hesitant to 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 get in that those affairs
0: yeah you may be right i think charles cook was uh we, you know our last podcast he was talking about uh, how he expects the Supreme Court to really, or I guess he was saying, advocating that they they shouldn't necessarily get involved in micromanaging these right. things, and they should just focus on big picture questions. And so this might be uh, too far down the list of like, well, should the federal courts be telling the military whether or not their installations are sensitive places where they can ban guns? And, right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, I just be honest, like, but but obviously, the counterpoint to that is, is these attacks we've seen, right um, on these on these military installations. And you're talking about keeping trained soldiers from being able to carry their right. firearms to protect themselves. It's a good point. It's it's not an easy uh, thing. I do. I do lean towards your your view, though, on it. Um, and so we'll we'll have to see honestly, I mean, that's another one where it, you're probably talking about years rather than months. Yeah, in terms definitely. Of- a case like that shaking out i'm not aware of, of one currently
1: okay.
0: um and so you'd have to see you I mean you'd have to be there's there's also a lot that comes with being in the military as far as like what how your individual rights are affected during your time in the military while on a military installation right there's probably uh, i would imagine there's case law that deals with that as well sure uh, that that would come into play here like yes you have second amendment rights- just like you have first amendment rights but I don't know if you if you're on an aircraft carrier on on duty and you want to refuse to do your work because you're protesting something right I I don't know if you could win a first amendment case on that
1: goes or you're grounds. barred from you know, like, t- tweeting your sensitive location when you're out on deployment right. or something like that that's a curtailment rights but yeah.
0: Yeah. There's all kinds of things that come into play there anyway.
1: Sure. Um, it's a good the question next question
0: though. here. Yes. Very good question. Uh, there are a lot of, like, like we said at the top of this, there's a lot of really good questions. That's an interesting, it's going to be an interesting, uh, debate, I think moving sure. forward, but, but, uh, the next, the next question kind of, uh, as I alluded to, gets into, um, part of what we were talking about here. And this one's from, uh, John, John Palado, the Pilato. lot all right sounds right to me <laughs> we, we are uh uh has, we've got some very very uh unique names uh, among our membership which uh, you know hey like i said i got crazy polish names so um <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's why if we're attracting other people with with uh, with fascinating ethnic uh last names but <laughs> regardless um john says Uh well he says a lot here, but I'm gonna try to condense it down a little bit. Um he's talking about Thomas um being frustrated with the lower courts uh after Holland McDonald, which yes, that definitely comes across in this ruling. Um and you know, he's saying that effectively uh he was saying in most jurisdictions, especially the Ninth Circuit, effectively became a rational basis test where just about any gun control legislation that was put forward by legislators was upheld. This is a common critique, right, that you've seen of yeah. uh, federal uh, litigation on guns over the last decade, which is one of the reasons why gun rights. This is why Thomas kept referring to the right as a second class right. You know, the the, the idea was that they're, this, yeah, especially in the Ninth Circuit, I don't believe they ever struck down any of the gun regulations in, in California or in in the entire circuit. So, not uh, you know, they had this two-step process a lot of lower courts were using that Thomas said was one step too far, which basically the first step was to identify whether or not the Second Amendment, second Amendment rights were implicated in, in by the law. And then the second step was to uh, use a balancing test to determine whether or not the uh, state had uh, – usually they – would uh, use intermediate scrutiny, although many people, uh, you know, basically criticized and said they were effectively
1: using as, as John says here, rational basis, which is yeah. a extremely low standard for con- shorthand, shorthand is government wins. That's the shorthand for rational basis. Right. You. Yeah.
0: And, uh, you know, intermediate scrutiny is supposed to be a, lo- a level above that, which is, uh, that the, you know, the government has to identify a,
1: um, uh, that that there uh, was do you remember yeah, the exactly the law is narrowly tailored for a compelling government interest? Yeah. Compelling government interest. Right. And uh, but a lot of people argued that they sort of threw
0: out the narrowly taro- tailored yeah. uh, aspect of that test oftentimes because um, you're talking about things like, again, total bans on. C- categories of firearms right. or handgun rosters
1: or, of,
0: or yeah. yeah. And the intention is to like stop violent crime. That's committed by a tiny percentage of the population, but you're banning everyone from owning this class of weapons. Right. Anyway, um, that was, has always been the, the critique, but he points out, uh, so he says, you know, moving to this new test, this, uh, he's caused a Texas region tradition, but I think really it's, it's just text informed by the tradition. Um, Uh, during the founding era, right? That's, and maybe the, the era of the 14th amendment.
1: With a special emphasis on text, Thomas made very clear that the text was key in this. So if something implicates the text, it's presumptively lawful, was kind of his big thing.
0: Unless there was unless there's an analogous regulation that fits into the tradition of, of uh of gun regulation during the the era where the second amendment and 14th amendments were were ratified but right. um you know so it's it's uh you know it's not strict scrutiny it's below that but it's above intermediate scrutiny for sure uh, and tom you know the, thomas and the court would say it's it's a rejection of these bouncing tests all altogether right um but anyway he, john's point here is that this new standard the problem with it is that it seems just as subjective um And and he says, creative legal minds can pour through history to make all sorts of arguments that can be used to uphold even the law struck down in Bruin. Um, Reading some of the amicus briefs for New York, you can see such appeals. While not uh, convincing to the conservative court, won't we just land back in the exact same situation where liberal circuit courts will rubber stamp any old gun control policy? And uh, we wrote about this uh, uh, a while back when the first when some of those, um, briefs were being filed, I think we wrote about the one he's talking about. Right. Actually. And yeah, this is one of this, the weaknesses with this new test yep. is that it's still fairly subjective. Like what, uh, what exactly does it mean for a law to be analogous with something that was in place, uh, you know, during the founding era that, that fits in the tradition of gun regulation.
1: Right. Right. Um, and, and how that, narrowly yeah. tailored is your definition of analogous going to be? Because you could be mm-hmm. some pretty strained definitions of analogous and say, oh, that's about the same. And so.
0: Yeah. And this is uh, something we were alluded to earlier. But yeah, absolutely. I think what you'll see is that the lower courts are just going to adopt this this new uh, a new kind of language for justifying the sure. same thing that they had yeah. before. Uh, and, and they'll say, you know, because the courts identify... The court isn't saying here that you need to have uh, an exact match for the regulation to be constitutional. So you don't need to have a uh, ban on the sale of machine guns to civilians from 1770, you know, 1792 for the law to be upheld as constitutional. Um, Instead, you just need uh, a right, you know, uh, regulations on uh, unusual and dangerous weapons. Right. Right. They talked about that a lot. Uh, you don't need uh, for the nationalistic criminal background check system to have been in place in, uh, you know, the the 18th century uh, for that system to be presumptively constitutional because it's designed to uh, ensure that people who are shown to be a danger to themselves or others aren't able to buy guns, which right. is, again, another thing that was... You know broadly part of regulation at the time of the the founding they tried to keep dangerous people from owning guns they tried to keep uh certain kinds of uh unusual or dangerous weapons from uh uh, public circulation right and so you're going to find a lot of ways to uh to justify that that sort of a lot of modern laws under the that reasoning
1: right um that's where our sensitive uh, places know. struggle comes from that we were just talking about with New York. Right. That's why they're they're testing that limit because at the time of yep. the founding, there were sensitive places restrictions at like polling places, for example, and New York right. saying, well, maybe we can stretch that analogy to cover most of lower Manhattan or whatever, you know? So that's kind yeah. of where this fight comes down to is how and how so that's, is a judge gonna read that?
0: Exactly. And that's, that's exactly the thing I think people on uh, having, you know, very strong reactions on either side of this are missing about about what's about to happen here, yeah. which is uh, which is why I keep emphasizing that this if the Supreme Court wants these lower courts to rule in the way that it wants that it expects, it's going to have to step in probably a number of times before they're going to actually uh, reach that. I mean, look at what happened in Heller, right? Heller came down. And it established the second amendment as an individual, right? How many laws were actually struck down because of that? I mean, not many, right. Realistically. Um, you know, there were only a couple of handgun bans in effect in the whole country at the time. I really like I don't know if, there, uh, you know, historians can, uh, or, or somebody who knows a bit more than me on this can maybe chime in, in the comments or something, but, uh, Chicago and DC might have been the only total bans on handguns. There might have been one or two smaller ones somewhere in other cities. But, but, uh, you know, the biggest effects, and I've, re- we've written about this at the Reload of Heller, uh, and McDonald really came to, uh, stun gun bans. Uh, yeah. And that was because, and that, that only happened, right? Because of, uh, Sertano, yeah. uh, the Massachusetts, which was a 2016 case that was basically just, uh, you know, it's, a two-page ruling that said, no, that said, yes, stun guns are protected by the Second Amendment. And that led to a lot of stun gun bans getting struck down, although it took years right. of filing cases to do that. But but so what you'll notice about that trend is the only laws that were consistently wiped from the books after Heller McDonald and uh, Sertano were ha- total handgun bans and total bans on uh, stun guns. Uh, so, uh, now what you're, it seems to me what's most likely to happen if the Supreme court does nothing else at all is that, uh, all the circuits that have been upholding these gun restrictions over the last 12 years are going to continue to do that except for when it comes to may issue gun carry laws. Yeah. The exact specific regulation that the Supreme court has now struck down. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what a lot of people are missing. Like it, the only way this extends, I could now you could be wrong. Maybe maybe this Ninth Circuit will see the light now, <laughs> and and suddenly, even though there's plenty of reason to, th- to think it so would, that, they that be could something? uphold a lot of these under <laughs> historical precedent, uh, or at least make the argument. I mean, like you right. said, there that argument for why New York's uh, law was was presumptively constitutional or had this historical tradition wasn't like stupid. It wasn't completely ridiculous. Um, it wasn't necessarily ultimately convincing, but you could find laws that are somewhat analogous. Um, you know, I think they misrepresented some of that stuff, but, and that got them in trouble, but, but, you know, regardless, you know, that's the point is like, you could still, you could still see a lot of these being upheld. It wouldn't shock me. Uh, and I think that so I think John's hitting on a very good point here, which yep. is like, go look at uh, Duke Firearms uh, Law Center, look at their historical yeah. database of gun laws. You're gonna find a lot of stuff in there that could easily be used as like this is this isn't an an analog or like right. broadly speaking, these are similar ideas of regulation. And so yeah, I think that's what the lower courts that are inclined to uphold stricter gun laws are gonna now go to.
1: Yep, they'll just find some statutes that apply, or roughly apply. I think that's right.
0: What's the next question?
1: So this one comes from William Fuller. Um, this is also that's an about, easier name. Yeah, easier I was gonna name. say, I, I nailed that one, I know that. <laughs> um, this one also deals with a recent Supreme Court decision, but not one that deals with guns, and he's wondering if it has maybe some crossover implications. So he says, there have been several gun cases not taken, or taken and left to stand since the last major ruling. Uh, does, the dobbs ruling and the votes for it have any implications for second amendment cases Um, he basically is asking he's referring to the fact that um, in the dobbs ruling which overturned roe v wade uh, chief justice john roberts wrote a concurrence uh, explaining his view that he would have liked to see the court uphold the mississippi abortion law but maybe not go so far as to overturn roe versus wade so he's asking Could that be a potential sticking point in future gun cases where you see justices like the Chief Justice maybe not want to go so far while others, say Clarence Thomas or Samuel Alito, willing to be more gung-ho in the pro-gun direction? So I think that's an interesting question. I think it's an
0: interesting question. The main difference between Dobbs and Bruin, though, is that Roberts was joined in his concurrence in Bruin by Kavanaugh, uh, and the whole concurrence was about how we're just reemphasizing that, uh, the second amendment is limited and that, you know, for instance, shall issue gun carry permits are presumptively constitutional or are, are right. literally constitutional, I guess would be the point they're making because they're not based on a, you know, an arbitrary decision by a government official as to whether or not you get your permit at the end of, uh, the, the permitting process. But, um, yeah. So, so, uh, you know, if you're just trying to look at like uh, doing the numbers game, right. Yeah. in Dobbs, it was basically, uh, five, four for striking down, uh, Roe v. Wade. Right. Um, and then six, three for upholding the, uh, the law, the actual abortion law that they were the 15 week ban. Right. Um, and, uh, and Robert's main point was that they didn't need to go further to uphold the law as they didn't need to strike down every Wade, So they they shouldn't have, I guess, was his point. But but in Bruin, it's um, the numbers don't work out quite that way, right? You know, it was six, three to strike down New York's law. And then, you know, you had two justices in that majority say. But just to remind everyone, you know, right. We're not striking down all permitting laws, and there are still many regulations that are presumptively constitutional under the Second Amendment. Right. So, if if you're trying to look at the numbers, you know, Roberts and Kavanaugh can could side with the liberals to block, uh, you know, a, a more aggressive interpretation of the Second Amendment in in a case down the line. Right. I guess would be the takeaway.
1: Yeah. No, but we don't know that for right. sure yeah it's just speculation, but I think that the context of, of him joining that concurrence does at least hint to that in the future. so I think it's yeah, yeah. it's
0: an interesting it's an interesting point though about Dobbs like really that was five four uh, for the big question right and uh, if it, it, yeah but but Roberts couldn't flip another one of the conservatives to his side so the um, but in Bruin, I mean, you know, look, the concurrence doesn't, it's not quite the same because the concurrence doesn't necessarily conflict with anything in the majority opinion in Bruin, right? It's not as though Bruin was, the majority said, uh, you know, oh, we're going to strike down all permitting laws. And then Roberts was said, no, we should just strike down New York's style of law. Uh, The majority opinion and the concurrence in that case were in line. It's just that, I guess, Roberts and Kavanaugh felt the need to emphasize the idea that they're not going beyond what what the majority is uh is saying so it's a little different but it is interesting to think about it's a good question yeah um and then he had a follow-up one here about um what are the conflicts and likely outcomes of the recent rulings regarding gun restrictions for citizens under 21 and the latest gun restriction
1: bill signed into law yeah so obviously as you pointed out the big first major federal gun control legislation signed in in several years um Mm. one of the big conflicts you've written pretty extensively about what this bill does and doesn't do uh, but one of the things you're really starting to pop up is this idea of a de facto waiting period being created by the process of this background check if you want to explain that
0: yeah i guess there's still some dispute over this because senator murphy
1: and the nra are in agreement that it does
0: exactly that it creates a de facto waiting period uh but senator cornyn uh, the Republican, so Murphy's, you know, the Democrat who was involved in these negotiations and, Mer- and Corinne is the Republican. And, uh, he, he, his office very much disagrees with this idea that it creates a de facto registry. If you look at the text, or not registry, but waiting period. If you look at the text, um, I think in practice, it'll be hard to, you know, I guess we'll have to wait and see how it works, but basically there, the FBI is given, three days to, um, identify whether or not somebody might have a prohibiting record, a juvenile record. Um, and then they're given 10 days total to find that record, um, right. before a sale can proceed without a decision. So the text does say that they have to return an answer as soon as possible. Uh, so if they find, if they figure it out before that three-day investigation period is over, they have to return it. So I guess in theory, it could end up being instantaneous, but it sounds like something that in practice, because the way it works is the FBI, the background check system, which is run by the FBI, of course, um, is supposed to call up the uh, the local police for where the, the 18 to 20-year-old who's affected by this uh, this regulation is, is living uh, call up their state mental health record system and, and call up their uh, you know, criminal, state uh, juvenile criminal record system right. to figure out if they have potentially some sort of disqualifying
1: record. Um,
0: and so that process doesn't sound like something I was just just going to say,
1: just describing that process off the bat, interagency, bureaucratic, right. Playing a game of telephone doesn't sound like a a quick thing at all. Right. Um,
0: now, I mean, I guess if these, it could be if these three, uh, entities all, all have their, all of their records, uh, in an electronic database that the FBI can just query like they do with a normal. Instant background check. You know, yeah. the, the NICS system queries a couple of databases. That's how a background check works. And so it's looking for whether or not you have a record or uh, maybe a, uh, are in a, a currently in a court proceeding, you know, with yeah. charges. Because then if you are, they might, they might, that's when you might get delayed for three day That three day period under the normal check, um, you'll get delayed so that they can look into whatever you're the questionable record is to see if it is something that's prohibiting. Um, Whereas in this system kind of turns that on its head, it's basically saying like, um, you know, go and look for something uh, potentially prohibiting from these three uh, agencies or three departments uh, to see, you know, rather than you get a flag that shows up in an instant check and then, and then the FBI goes and, does a, a more thorough, you know, in person look. So to me, uh, you know, it, it certainly seems like all of those 18 to 20 year olds are just going to automatically get put into a delayed uh, situation. And so it yeah. is a de facto waiting period, <laughs> you know, right. Maybe the system will work faster than it's, than it sounds like it will. Right. But that's, so that's, that's what's at issue. But um, I think he's also referring to the uh, there was a ruling in California about their uh, under twenty one uh, ban on oh that's right uh, ownership of uh, you know AR15s and other similar firearms uh, and, and so um, I think that could be impacted by the Bruin decision uh, certainly I think all these sort of under twenty one you know eighteen to 20 year old regulations could be impacted because i don't know if there's a, gonna be an analogous historical gun regulation that that targeted 18 to 20 year olds i kind of i doubt that that's the case. i highly doubt it yeah um again you know you'll you'd have to go and, and search through and and see uh what what's out there but uh yeah i would be very surprised if if those weren't implicated by this ruling um and although i will say that like i'm not sure that anything in the senate in the senate bill or the, the new federal law is going to be immediately implicated by this ruling i agree because what they're doing is basically i mean maybe this 18 to 20 year old special background check thing could um but it seems less likely because it doesn't actually ban right those people from owning guns it just um changes the background check system for them um and so the that you're still basically talking about background checks on to ensure that they're not dangerous people, which does seem likely constitutional under how the Supreme court has interpreted these things or what they've written. in, especially in Heller, um, about what kinds of gun laws are, you know, presumptively constitutional now, you know, that, that's just like a couple paragraphs in Heller. So it's not exactly completely fleshed out, but, but, um, what they've talked about as categories of 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 restrictions that are in line with that tradition it does seem like the background check system and most stuff that involves like looking into whether or not somebody is is prohibited that those uh those seem constitutional either and that's all this
1: bill really really does is change those things so i was going to say because they didn't go for a ban on any type of You know, possession or purchasing, I think you're right. So, all right, next question here. Um, we got
0: uh, Buddy McDuffie with a silencer question. Uh, with silencers becoming more and more popular and legal for hunting in many locations, do you think the latest SCOTUS ruling could eventually bring changes to the NFA? And uh, this is another good question of you know, people I think are uh, asking a lot. I've seen a couple people. Implying that basically like the NFA, the gun control act, the Brady bill are all going to be, uh, you know, in trouble now because of Bruin. And I, that's another area where I just think that's probably not the case. Right. Uh,
1: because of what Heller says. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say the dangerous and unusual weapons portion of that decision you could very easily see a judge say, "Hey, look, they said that this is presumptively constitutional. That there's a tradition of prohibiting dangerous and unusual weapons, and in our mm-hmm. opinion, those regulated under the National Firearms Act are, you know, dangerous and unusual weapons." So, yeah.
0: Now, here's the only thing I would say about that: to the other direction, Heller was a compromise ruling. That's what it was. Like they needed to get Kennedy on board. Yeah. And so Heller was very. Uh, specifically tailored to say one thing, which is that uh, if the Second Amendment means anything at all, which they think it does, uh, it means that you can have the most popular gun in the country in your own home for self-defense. And so DC's handgun ban was unconstitutional because of that. Uh, and so, what it was trying to do is set up this baseline of what the right means, um, without implicating a bunch of current law. And so they wrote this; these two paragraphs in there, a couple paragraphs, it's like two pages in the Heller uh, ruling, <clears throat> that basically say, you know, all these federal laws that exist, all these federal gun control laws, they're all fine. Uh, you know, th- it talks about being able to ban m16s, you know, fully automatic weapons, being, uh, able to, you know, ban dangerous because they're dangerous and unusual, I guess is the, would be the, the logic there. And then being able to, you know, uh, keep dangerous people from owning firearms. So the background check system would be part of that. Now, maybe the court will, uh, will start to chip away at some of those laws down the line. Um, you know it's when they get into more detail on what exactly you know it means to prohibit a dangerous person, like how, for instance, uh, you could I think you could see something like uh, nonviolent felonies or some somebody who's been convicted of a nonviolent felony being prohibited might uh conflict with this idea of regulating you know, keeping dangerous people from owning guns because, um, sure. you know, if you Committed insider trading. Does that mean you're too dangerous to own a firearm? Uh, you know, is that is that kind of person the kind of person that was being prohibited during the founding era, or is that too broad? You know, so uh, and you know, again, dangerous and unusual weapons. That's of course the common use standard is 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 very um, flaky in and of itself, right? Like, what the heck is common use? Right. Uh, you know, certainly for some things it's easy. AR-15s. Uh, they're the most popular rifle in the country, or, or even just base level Heller, right? Handguns. Handguns are the most popular category of guns in the country. Right. And so, yeah, it's pretty easy to tell that they're in common use. Machine guns, um, you know, fully automatic weapons. Well, there's uh, several hundred thousand of them that are registered in the NFA. Right. Is that common? I don't, I don't, you know,
1: or I even know. silencers. There's millions registered. Silences. in the
0: That's right. Yeah. So, uh, I would still expect that those challenges are down the line
1: challenges. You yes, get a lot sure. more
0: things that would be immediately imperiled than the federal gun laws, honestly. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe down the line and maybe, you you're talking years down the line, I
1: would think. Yeah, I agree. You can't know for sure, but, That's where I would come down on it. All right. Next question. Got a quick one from Julio Barreto, who says, uh, how will the ruling impact out-of-state residents? He's referring to the Bruin ruling. uh, Impact out-of-state residents seeking permits in New York and New Jersey. So uh, what do you think about that?
0: I think that that was left out of the Bruin decision. Uh, Unlike uh, Wren in D.C., where the federal court said you have to issue out-of-state permits. It told D.C. they had to do that. Uh, uh, non-resident permits, uh, Bruin didn't do that for New York. So my guess is none of these states are going to allow out, of, uh, non-resident permits and none of them are going to offer reciprocity. Yeah. So <clears throat> you're going to have to have another legal case to get to that. Right. If, if you can at all, I don't know. Uh, cause Bruin just didn't touch on it. Yeah. So no, I think that's exactly right. All right. Um let's get into some, some ATF, uh, rules and how they're going to be affected. So, uh, Adam Nicholson asks, uh, I'd love to know what the likely legal challenges are to the pending pistol brace rules. Um, or why don't we just give, I think a couple of people had asked about pistol braces, right? Yeah. Um, and what's the state of them? What's going on? How might they be impacted by this ruling? And, uh, uh, well, first off, just the state of them—it seems uh, so. The ATF, in a legal filing in a Second Amendment Foundation case, said that they have uh, finished reviewing, two hundred thousand plus comments uh, on the uh, the the pistol brace ban rule, and uh, they're formulating their their final rule now. But they're expecting it to drop in December. The final rule—it wouldn't go into enforcement until sometime next year most likely is usually there's like 90 to 120 days before these things go into, uh, you know, are enforced, but, uh, you know, similar to the ghost gun rule, which is still not enforced yet, even right. though the final ruling has been, uh, made public, but, um, yeah, so that's actually a delay because it was everything that we had heard was August. And so now it's December, um. You know, of course, the ATF is in kind of a is kind of in flux right now because they they just demoted the acting director uh, at the request of uh, basically the gun control groups uh, who didn't like him, uh, and um, they have an uh, another acting director who's also a U.S. attorney in Arizona, so he's sort of they kind of have like a part time acting yeah. director right now, um, and of course the Biden's permanent director is. Is uh, well, he's still waiting for his full vote in the Senate, although it seems very likely that he will be confirmed at this point because uh, the vote to um, move him from the judiciary, the vote in the judiciary committee was a tie. So all the Republicans opposed him and all the Democrats voted for him. But the vote to discharge him to a full floor vote was, uh, I think it was like 52 in favor. So um, it's extremely likely he will get at least 50, if not, you know, 51 or 52. Yeah, Um, but that hasn't happened yet. And I think a couple of senators have had severe injuries. Uh, Yeah. Kramer like cut his hand off.
1: Yeah. Or had something close to that. Yeah. a catastrophic lawn accident or something like that.
0: Yeah. Something crazy. Although I think he's going to be back relatively soon. Uh, But uh, was it Leahy?
1: Yeah. from Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, Because all these people in the Senate are like 99 years old. So (laughs) literally a senator broke his hip by falling so um i think that might actually have some impact i saw a, a washington post reporter um was saying i can't remember but i think it was Du Bois. um and he's a you know a top uh hill reporter so he said that might slow the timeline i, I we'll see but anyway um yeah uh the brace rules seems like they've been pushed back won't go into effect until at least next year so uh and then as far as like um well, the, I think these next two questions are uh, similar to, are all going to be the same basic question, which is, right. Uh, we got J.B. Sumner and Ben Leonard, and they're asking about the ruling in uh, West Virginia versus EPA, right, and how that has an effect on the ATF's ability to promulgate these sort of regulations. Right. Right. Um, <clears throat> and how that might affect you know the brace the brace situation. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened in the EPA?
1: Sure. Well, yeah. So the whole deal in the the EPA case was essentially the Environmental Protection Agency under Obama. So this dates back to an Obama era regulation, very broadly construed an obscure portion of the Clean Air Act in order to promulgate rules that created a de facto cap and trade program and. You know blah, blah 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 i won't get into mm-hmm. many environmental details for this podcast right. but essentially what the court said was hey you can't do that without explicit authorization from congress because this rule would have substantial economic and political implications and when that happens it's what's called the major questions doctrine expect the court to take a closer look at what your statutory basis is for doing these regulations and they said and "Hey, do you, you think d- that you don't have it here
0: yeah do, do you think that's gonna do you think this sort of uh, pistol brace regulation rises to that major questions standard
1: I could see an argument for it because as we've written in our reporting there are millions of these pistol braces out there a lot of gun owners own them so you could make the argument that hey this is going to have severe economic and political implications because you're criminally prohibiting something that millions of people legally own at the same time The statutory basis for their actions are a little more firm than it was in the EPA's case, like the NFA. There are explicit definitions of what a short-barreled rifle is as it pertains Mm. to the NFA. And if the ATF is just saying that we're going to interpret braced pistols with the barrel length that fits the same as short-barreled rifles, I I think that's an entirely different calculus here than what was at issue in, in the EPA case.
0: Right, because I think one of the key things in the EPA case was that the cap-and-trade proposal that the EPA sort of uh, unilaterally put in place themselves using this vague uh, statute, uh, you know, that proposal was was debated and rejected by Congress a, a bunch of times. So that was right. like one of the main environmental policies that Congress has been fighting over for years. and And so the fact that they never actually passed it, and then the EPA came along and basically did it on their own without really statutory authorization that's yeah. a little different than the atf changing its view on what constitutes you know what fits this definition of uh you know a short barrel rifle um right although obviously there's probably a case to be made that they uh, that there, you could actually you could see it uh, being challenged under that I think, and and under Bruin, yeah. Um, although if you challenge, but challenging it under Bruin, you'd have to challenge the whole NFA, which again goes back to this, this you know this question of whether the Supreme Court would go for that because they've right. been pretty, at least uh, ancillary in ancillary comments, they've been pretty comfortable saying. The NFA and other federal gun laws are constitutional to this point. Right. But it, it, yeah, so maybe the EPA thing might even be a better challenge than, than the,
1: going the Bruin. I would say definitely expect people to try in litigation. I would just say have cautious optimism. If you think that's going to be the winning ticket for dismantling the regulation yeah. would be my final take.
0: Um, yeah. And then uh, uh, let's do real quick. uh uh, we have uh, Kazan. Is, is, uh, is uh, presume is a is, uh, not his uh, full name, but he asks uh, uh, some member that asks, uh, please describe the exact new rules surrounding ghost guns. I've heard so much bad information. I don't know what to believe. I would love to hear what this new regulation includes and doesn't include. So what uh, we have a piece um, on the reload that that gets into more detail on exactly what the ghost gun rule, uh, change does, but effectively, um, it really goes after ghost gun kits. Um, and so essentially, uh, you cannot sell, they, they've, they're interpreting a, a ghost gun kit as a act as an actual firearm. Yeah. So if you have the 80% lower and you have the jig, and the tools to complete the, the 80% and you sell that all together, or you put it all together in a kit, then it becomes a a firearm. And it's subject to all the regulations of selling a firearm. So basically, like polymer 80 or somebody, they can't sell you a kit anymore. Um, But it doesn't make ghost guns illegal It doesn't make it illegal for a a person to Possess uh, an unserialized firearm. Uh, now there are state laws that are yeah. going that route, um, and that's another thing that that actually is probably going to be implicated by Bruin, frankly. Um, yeah, because I don't know that there's any historical analogy for that sort of
1: regulation. That's you know saying that you can't. In fact, uh, it'd if be quite the, the contrary. I think since self-manufacturing yeah. of firearms is so you know old as right. a tradition. Right. So. And was probably the main way people got right. guns uh, right. in the founding era. So, um,
0: but yeah, now effectively it doesn't, it doesn't like, if you have ghost guns now, if you have unsterilized firearms that you've previously built, uh, as long as your state doesn't ban them in some way or replace further regulations, the new rule doesn't impact you. Uh, it impacts perhaps what you can buy. Yeah. Uh, Cause you can't go out and, and buy the, uh, what the buy, build, shoot kits anymore. Uh, although they were already coming under heavy scrutiny anyway.
1: Yeah, local jurisdictions were um, always suing so. them. And yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, so, but that, that's that's mainly what it does is it goes after kits. Uh, it sort of uses this new, very broad definition of firearm, which that might have some EPA. Uh, that the EPA case might come more into play there, because of what the ATF is claiming as its authority for regular, you know, to. to defining what a firearm is, even though they're saying now that they're not necessarily going to practically change how they've done things the last 50 years, the authority they've given themselves is extremely broad. Right. Um, I think we have time for just one or two more questions here, but, uh, we got another one, uh, from Kazam, Kazam, Kazam. It's like Shazam, but <laughs> okay. Um, or Kazaa, remember? Cause do you, are you old enough to remember what Kazaa was? Uh, uh-uh, I don't know. Kazaa is a P2P sharing file sharing thing, like, like, uh, Limewire or, oh, or yeah, Napster, uh, in the early days. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, that's the one I used in college. So people might be able to, uh, guess my age from that. But, uh, <laughs> what are the real changes to who does and does not need a license to sell guns? Uh, under the new federal law. Uh, I read the change and I'm not sure I can see the difference between the old one and the new one. Uh, I don't have an FFL and don't wanna get one. So being clear on what's this change in the law is about would be great. Uh, this is another really good question. And one I think that's been super under covered and, and hasn't really gotten enough attention. Uh, I think the industry doesn't really, uh, you know, this is something that they you might think they'd get involved with, but it really doesn't impact them much. Right? Um, it, people it impacts are private citizens who sell firearms uh, because the change, uh, you're right. There isn't a huge difference between the old definition and the new one, but there is a difference, and I think it is a significant one. Uh, both definitions are extremely vague, right? So you, the way we regulate firearms in the United States is uh, we regulate commercial sales. Uh, like a lot of things, right? Uh, If you want to have a business selling guns, then you have to get licensed by the federal government. And along with that licensing requirement comes the requirement to do background checks on people you sell guns to. So this has been a contentious issue for years because, um, you know, the gun control advocates and, and Democrats want more background checks, more sales to be covered by background checks. So in theory, most of the time they want more, you would think that that would mean they'd want more people to be FFLs. And that's kind of what this this new rule change or regulation change uh, is is aiming at. But for a long time, they didn't, it was actually the opposite. Um, the Clinton administration didn't like so many people having FFLs uh, in the nineties because there was an issue of with what's called a uh, kitchen table diner, uh, kitchen, <laughs> kitchen table dealers, uh, where you know you, there were a lot of people had FFLs, uh, way way more than today. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people had FFLs, and they wanted to crack down on that, so they modified the definitions and changed up the fees to get an FFL in order to get rid of a lot of these kitchen table dealers. People working, you know, operating in a firearms business outside of their house, and and in a lot of cases, really not doing much in the terms of the business side. You know, when you have an FFL, they, there are other things that are benef- uh, uh, beneficial about that. Like you can have guns shipped directly to your house if you have an FFL. Right. Uh, right. So there's like, there's, you don't have to go through the background check when you're buying a gun, that sort of thing. So there's advantages, and that's why people would get them. But, uh, and you can occasionally sell guns for profit too. Uh, straight, you know, you can get guns from uh, the manufacturer and sell them. Uh, but anyway, this new change, uh, the thing that's significant about it, the thing that says, so you need a license if you are in the business of dealing firearms, right? But now, what does in business mean? Well, it used to involve uh, you know, a standard for livelihood and profit. Um, so you, you have to you know, derive your, some of your livelihood from selling guns, you have to make a profit. Now they've removed the livelihood standard and it's just about profit. So uh, it's still unclear They you know, the thought was before this went through that they might put a number like how many guns you could sell before you had to right. get a license. But they didn't do that. Instead, they just slightly tweaked the language and got rid of the livelihood aspect and said, it was just, you know, if the main purpose is profit, then you have to get uh, a license. And it's not clear what that means. Uh, it's even less clear than before, because before at least you had, uh, I think Charles Cook mentioned this in the podcast last week, at least you had, you know, several decades of case law to figure out what that means. Now they're kind of resetting the whole thing. And uh, it seems like a lower standard, frankly, one where um, if you sell even a single gun for a profit, in theory, maybe you uh, would have to get a, a license to do that. It's its, it is it's strange really still it,
1: very murky. It, it, it kind of tries to bridge the gap, maybe between the Clinton era crackdown and also still allowing people to get FFLs, so they do conduct background checks when they sell guns. Um, yeah. So, like you said, it's it's weird, murky gray area that they landed on with that definition. I think it puts a
0: lot of people in legal jeopardy who uh, otherwise wouldn't have been. That's what yeah. I would say. And it still basically leaves it up to the ATF to determine yeah. on a case by case basis yeah. who they think needs a license. No, exactly. I don't know if that doesn't sound like a good outcome to me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why anyone would root for that. I mean, it's just, it's it's sort of like, you know, just giving the ATF more uh, leeway to determine things however they want. Right. Um, And and a much more aggressive standard. So I sold a gun for profit once. Uh, You know, when ARs were, the prices were through the roof. I sold one of my ARs and made money off of that. I sold it through an FFL. <laughs> I don't know, so you know it, it makes it very un, unclear to me. Yeah. It makes it more unclear than it was before. No, I think even though right. the standards are fairly similar. Um, so uh, and then uh, let's do one last question here just to, to wrap it up. Okay, uh, we have uh, uh, Julio Barreto. Who asked what are good resources to share with those seeking firearm ownership for the first time? And this is our last question, but yeah, um, I think that uh, that one. You know, there's a lot of great resources online now. YouTube has really good resources um, uh, for for first timers You know, gun gun reviews, things like that. Um, active self protection, which you know, I do their podcast uh, every week, which is a good podcast. You guys should check out especially if you've made it this far in, into the episode uh, you'd probably something you'd be very interested in uh, where the, cause they, they analyze real world shooting incidents and self-defense encounters. So I've always really valued the, the work that they do. Um, then their YouTube videos are fantastic. Their podcast is also amazing because they actually interview some of the people in the, those encounters You can learn quite a lot about the real life uh, real life incidents, how, how this stuff actually happens in the real world. But, um, you know, uh, your NRA basic pistol courses are great. Uh, I'm certified to teach that, um, those are available nationwide, uh, whatever you think about the NRA and, you know, its current struggles and dilemma, uh, it is still by far the largest, um, gun training association in in the world, really. (laughs) And they are readily available, those classes, um, Uh, everywhere. And so you also have uh, groups like USCCA that are do that have certified trainers as well. Um, And, you know, I would suggest, uh, you know, finding a club that that matches your interests, uh, what you what you want to do with shooting there can also there's like also really good uh, clubs for, uh, you know, people with shared backgrounds the National African American Gun Association, you know, um, a, a girl and a gun shooting league, um, the liberal gun club, uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of groups out there, of people who are, uh, you know, like-minded or have a shared, shared experience or shared background that can be helpful to new shooters, uh, to understand that, you know, they're not, uh, they're not the only ones right, with that, uh, that background or worldview that, that enjoy firearms. Uh, of course you don't, it's not necessary to do something like that, but I feel like I find that people say that can be helpful. Yeah. Um it, it, you know, if they're in those communities, but uh there's also just all kinds of shooting clubs uh out there that just regular shooting clubs that you can join. Um you know, head to your local range, take a class. Uh you know, most of them will offer gun safety training and they'll a lot of them will have rentals for guns and definitely take some training before you start shooting, yes. certainly um or go with an experienced shooter who can show you what to, what to do but but yeah i mean uh you know you, you can look up things online and then head to the range and try them out in real life uh and see what you enjoy you know tr- you can try all kinds of different there's all sorts of different shooting too there's yeah. another thing that's important to to understand like even if you don't in shooting enjoy shooting paper with a handgun at the range at an indoor range like maybe try skeet shooting at an outdoor range somewhere you know that that's a very different experience.
1: Yeah, or, I would just there. echo. Yeah, I would say I would just echo everything you said. I was when I I became a first time gun owner just a few years ago, so this is pretty recent for me. But I, I was fortunate to at least grow up with a household that was familiar with guns, but guns weren't a huge part of our lives. Um, so when I was when I turned twenty one and I could legally go buy a handgun and I was interested in it uh people online were an indispensable asset for me for figuring out what to look for in a first-time gun uh what would be some good options and from there like you said i went to my local gun range i took some training courses uh just to brush up on my skills and it made the world of difference um and so i i would just echo everything that you just said that the, definitely seek training and then don't be afraid to use all the resources at your disposal to explore all that shooting sports and firearms ownership has to offer
0: absolutely uh, and of course you can sign up for a reload membership that's too, right uh, and talk to <laughs> us or ask a question on this podcast in the future I, or you know come uh, come on the podcast yourself we're hoping to get another members segment going again soon i uh, always enjoy doing those so uh you know head over the reload and see what our membership options are and uh, if they fit with what you're looking for or you know sign up for the free newsletter that uh, give it a try see see what we we've got to offer before you buy any memberships or you yeah, you could just stay on the free membership you'll still get all of uh, the the biggest stories that we break uh you, you won't have access to some of the exclusive stuff but you'll still i think get uh, a big benefit out of it so uh, check it out today over at reload.com. that's it for us we will see you again next week